Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. My name is R. Grant Kleiser, and I'll be your host today for what I'm sure will prove to be a fascinating discussion. That's mostly due to the fact that with me today is Dr. Stanley Mervis, an assistant professor of history in the School of Historical, Philosophical, Philosophical and Religious Studies, and the Harold and Jean Grossman Chair of Jewish Studies at Arizona State University. His work focuses on the Western Sephardic Jewish diaspora and the Portuguese Nassau, or Portuguese nation, uh, during the early modern period, which we'll talk a lot more about during the upcoming interview. So today we'll be discussing his newly published monograph entitled The Jews of 18th Century Jamaica, A Testamentary History of a Diaspora in Transition, out now via Yale University Press. This book tracks the hundreds of Jewish men and women who lived on the island of Jamaica, investigating their relationship to the local context and society of that island, as well as with the larger global and Atlantic Jewish diaspora during the long 18th century. Dr. Mervis, congratulations on this new publication, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Grant. I'm, I'm really happy to be here. Great. Well, first off, I just wanted to, you know, establish some context for our listeners, many of whom, you know, might not be completely familiar with this topic. So can I ask you just to set the scene for us? Uh, How did a Jewish community end up in Jamaica in the 17th century? Uh, You know, what were they doing there? And what exactly was the Portuguese Nassau? Sure. Uh, The, about around 1580, the, the Spanish annexed Portugal which meant that the real crypto Jews that were living in Portugal because of the conditions of their expulsion, which was just really an an en masse conversion, and because of a moratorium on inquisitorial investigation meant that actual crypto Judaism flourished in Portugal among the conversos. When the Spanish annexed Portugal, it, it created the conditions for crypto Judaism to now enter the border into Spain and then over the Pyrenees into southern France, where... They weren't allowed to live there, but they lived there as Portuguese merchants under the radar. The, the French turned a blind eye to the fact that they were basically openly Jewish. Uh, and then they established new communities throughout Western Europe, especially in Amsterdam. And then a, a number of satellite communities emerged in London, in Hamburg, in Livorno. So, uh, you know, th- this is what we what we call the Western Safari diaspora. Mm-hmm. or the Portuguese diaspora. Uh, so this uh, is the community of Jews that expanded into the Western Hemisphere. They had all been conformer conversos. Their language was Portuguese. Uh, they, they kept their minutes in Portuguese. They, uh, th- th- their letters are in Portuguese. A lot of their sermons, uh, the rabbinic sermons in Portuguese, they had all had this experience of re-Judaization. That is the very complex, Plex transition from crypto Judaism or sincerely Catholic, being a sincerely Catholic converso to being a rabbinic Jew, which produced all kinds of new literature, ideologies, and uh, new rabbinic methods and things like that. Uh, so uh, the first community in the Americas was in Brazil and Hitsifi, and uh, that was uh, when the Portuguese reclaimed Pernambuco in 1654. That community came to an end, although it was very much diminished before that. Uh, and those Jews that had lived in Brazil with expertise in sugar plantation and sugar investment really more than anything else, 
most of them made their way back to Amsterdam or made their way to Livorno or to London, were from where some of them recrossed the Atlantic to establish communities in Suriname, Jamaica, Barbados, New York, and so on. Uh, so uh, some of them just crossed the borders into the Guianas and into Suriname. So th- this is the origins of Caribbean and really American Jewry. Uh, it's really a Portuguese story. I prefer the, to call them Portuguese rather than call them Western Sephardi mm-hmm. because the term Sephardi uh, Spaniard isn't really used in this context. And they don't really use Ladino, which is Castilian and Hebrew characters, as in the East and the Islamic Mediterranean world, the Ottoman world. So it's a very distinct uh, community of Jews. Now, that said, a lot of German-speaking, Yiddish-speaking, uh, you know, Ashkenazi Jews were well on their heels. Also made their way. So in Suriname and Stasia, Saint Eustatius, there were very large communities of Ashkenazim as well in the colonial period. So it's not an exclusively Portuguese story. So uh, what brought them to the the Caribbean? Why the Caribbean was such an important location for Jewish settlement, much more so than North America. In the in the seventeenth and eighteenth century, uh, was uh, the trade networks they were providing uh, mostly fi- finished goods, manufactured goods from Europe to to the Spanish world and to other parts of the Caribbean, and uh, they were trading with the with the Spanish world. Uh, they had a limited involvement in the slave trade. Not to say that they weren't almost all slave owners, uh, and so uh, th- this is what brought them there. Um, they had. They were able to really exploit their vast networks mm-hmm. of linguistic and familial and cultural networks that they had built throughout the Western Hemisphere. Um, and so, you know, it, the story of American Jewish history is somewhat skewed because it's very much focused on North America. But in the 18th century, in the 17th century, uh, the, the, the communities of North America, be it Savannah, New York, Charleston, uh, Newport, were were minuscule compared to a place like Kingston, which was small compared to Curacao, which was, you know, and so um, this was, uh, you know, you know, the really the gravity of Jewish life in the Americas in the colonial period was in the Caribbean. Yeah. Yeah, no, I just a quick anecdote. I mean, I, I remember going to Curacao uh, on a family vacation when I was a child and seeing a synagogue there as as the one of, if not the oldest continuous surviving synagogues in the Western Hemisphere and being sort of fascinated by that history that, that you hardly ever hear about, especially from a North American perspective. So, Yeah, yeah that, that synagogue, Mikvah Yisrael, which is, uh, yeah. I think, built in 1732. That is the oldest standing yeah. synagogue structure in, um, in the Americas. So Curacao was really, uh, the, the, the attempt was to make it into a little Amsterdam in the Americas. And it just, you know, it never had the same rabbinic authority. It always had Amsterdam-trained rabbis serving there, mm-hmm. but they weren't able to establish an academy like they had in Amsterdam that was training, that was specialized in training former conversos to integrate into rabbinic Judaism. And and, and that's important because Curacao was also still receiving lots of conversos from South America mm-hmm. who were seeking to re-Judaize in, in in Curacao, so um, the, the the need for rabbinic authority was really important. And, and so we're and you know going from Curacao to Jamaica, was there a initially a relative acceptance of this Jewish community in a place like Jamaica when it is conquered uh, by uh, the English in 
1655? Yeah, so th- that's uh, th- this to me is one of the great uh, missing pieces to this story. Mm-hmm. So uh, as you know, the Oliver Cromwell had this kind of puritanical mission to descend this army of like fasters, you know, like army of like pure Puritans to take, um, to take Hispaniola. When they failed to do that, they went to, to very um, mildly defended North coast of Jamaica and they conquered that instead. Mm-hmm. And so, so the, the Island of Jamaica becomes under English hegemony in the 16, 1655. Um, now it doesn't mean the end of the Spanish in a way the the Jews there are kind of interesting because they represent a continuity of mm. Spanish language and culture in a way, even after the English conquest. And it took many years for the English to completely subdue the Spanish and former Spanish slaves that formed autonomous communities in the northern part and the middle part of the island. Those are called those are maroon communities. So uh, it wasn't a straight shot. Now, uh, Jamaica is usually thought of in Atlantic history or even in early American history as being kind of this model of tolerance. Mm-hmm. It, like, like any port city, there was a great degree of tolerance. There's a terminology that we often use called port Jews to refer to you know, Jews that live in trading ports um, that, that have sort of a, a, a much more clearer path to emancipation than did Jews living in places that didn't that, that weren't as dependent on them for a trade economy. Mm-hmm. So in, in one way, Jamaica is not that unique from other port cities, be it Livorno, you know, or be it uh, uh, London or or in Bayonne or, or, or Trieste in, in uh, Italy. So that there were uh, so in that sense, it's not exactly unique. But uh, uh, Port Royal, the earliest settlement, and uh, the English, in, in the English uh, island of Jamaica, mm-hmm. was um, heralded for its tolerance. So very early on, already in the 1660s, the decision was made that Protestant dissenters would have uh, would be tolerated in Jamaica. Uh, Catholics less so, but they were there and they were just they were tolerated, although not officially. Mm-hmm. Same with uh, same with Jews. Now that didn't actually become codified until the 1670s, and so it's in the 1670s when the the same rights that were extended to Huguenot and to into uh, Calvinists, uh, rather rather uh, Quakers, were then extended also to Jews. So Jews were officially uh, tolerated. Now unofficially, it was a little different because they had a lot of hostility from. Um, from the from the non-Jewish, the, the white Christian merchant community that was very much threatened by Jewish trading success. Mm-hmm. So there were frequent petitions to the Board of Trade. Uh, and when that failed, they go right, they go straight to the monarchy to try to curtail Jewish trading activities. This it, it instigated a, a kind of very aggressive Jewish lobby, a transatlantic lobby that included the Jews in uh, London. And uh, so this is another interesting part of the story, but it's not exactly a story of complete tolerance. Um, the tolerance was not an ethical consideration. It was an economic consideration. And it was a top-down process rather than a popular process. Mm. Um, and one thing that really, I, I think, puts that into sharp relief is after the major earthquake that destroyed Port Royal in 1692, they, uh, the, the Jamaican Assembly instituted a a Jewish tax. Now, something like that had existed in Barbados sporadically 
Um, and it, it, it's something that looked more like Jews living in Islamic lands as Dima, where you pay, a, you pay a tax to live there as a tolerated minority, a Yizya. And, that's, and nothing like that existed in Protestant Western Europe. A Jew tax paid up collectively annually uh, to live there as being Jewish. And that was in place in Jamaica from the, the earthquake until 1740. Uh, so, um, and in a lot of ways, that there was, it was very limited tolerance. Yeah. Uh, and and one one of the arguments I make in my book is that you, you know th- there's a deterioration of tolerance as you get closer to emancipation. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a counterintuitive uh, way of looking at the story. But in a, in other words, as you get into the 1780s and 90s, I find that there's an acceleration of anti-Jewish sentiment mm-hmm. that uh, leading up to. The, the, the granting of enfranchisement to Jews. Yeah, that's, no, it's really interesting about how the, the dichotomy and trajectories of popular resentment or tensions versus, as you said, the, the lobby growing in power and to eventually be able to have Jewish emancipation in the 19th century, but how that's not a, not a parallel trajectory of what's happening on the ground. That's really, really... Yeah, uh, exactly. You know, it's, it's a very contradictory story, which makes it a beautiful a model of the Atlantic world because it's just so full of these, you know, dialectic kind of, you know, contradictions um, because just as much. So Jews, you know, had such limited tolerance in Jamaica, but they, but they could be in denizen. Yeah. And as a denizen, they could own property. They could trade freely. They could arbitrate disputes in court. Now denization had limits. They couldn't, that status wasn't inherited in perpetuity. Uh, they still paid higher alien tariffs. You know, uh, Jews were uh, an easily targeted minority. So there were cases when uh, Jewish ships were confiscated and other things, thinking that, um, you know, Jews didn't have, you know, didn't have the, the ability to defend themselves as a community. So they were easily exploited in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, all of that said, it, compared to other parts of the world, they were, uh, they were some of the biggest real estate uh, developers in the city of Kingston. And look, you know, they and they had they were empowered over other people in a way that uh, in a way that was unthinkable to a lot of Jews in Central or Eastern Europe um, because they lived in a slave society. So the fact that they had a mastery over other people, you know, despite the fact that they themselves were uh, were discriminated against, you know, really tells a very contradictory story. Yeah, definitely. Well, um we definitely want to go into all those those points more, but before we get into too much more content, I have a, a couple of, of more sort of broader questions for you about sort of how you came to the topic and some challenges you had with writing this book. Um, so, you know, this this book uh, combines three elements that I probably wouldn't put together in a, in a word association, or not many people would put together in a word association, which is uh, Portuguese, Jews, and Jamaica. Um, <laughs> I was I was wondering, you know, how how did you come to this topic? How did you write this book? How did you figure out these connections um, and, and, and write this story? Yeah, uh, you know, yeah. The, the most the most frequent question I get easily is uh, there were Jews in Jamaica? Question <laughs> mark. Yeah. Um, I'm like, yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, that to me is such an obvious thing. You know, that it's like the question mark should be there were Jews in North America. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because they were, you know, it was completely minuscule by comparison. Um, so the way I came to it was, you know, I was writing a, uh, I was in my PhD program at the the, the CUNY Graduate Center at so the University of New York, mm-hmm. 
Um, and I had um, my intention fully was to continue on with work that I had done in my master's program at Yeshiva University, which was uh, writing about Hebrew travel literature. So I was sort of interested in these. I was interested in itineracy, um, the, the, you know, the kind of uh, the, the perceptions of otherness. Those were the things that the kind of questions that I was asking when I went to my when I started my Ph.D. program. Uh, and then, uh, you know, as you know, uh, at a PhD program, we have to write certain qualifying papers. Mm-hmm. And I had a really great advisor. My advisor is one of the great scholars of uh, Sephardic history, uh, Jane Gerber, who's written about Fez and about the Jews in Spain and the Spanish uh, Sephardi diasporas. Mm-hmm. And she suggested to me, you know, look, I know somebody in Jamaica, a Jew in Jamaica. Would you like to go and uh, go visit him? You know, and uh, go to the archives and just do some explorations and see what's there. So I'm like, sure. <laughs> you know, you're asking me if I go to Jamaica, and so yeah. Uh, and I went, and I and and there I made a connection with Ainsley Henriquez, like one of the a scion of the Jewish community, and the that's still that, that really one of the leading voices of Jewish Jamaica. And I went to go explore the archives. Now that's where I started to run into problems because. The, the, the Jew, Jews in Jamaica, they they left very little sources, and that's because there was a major fire in Kingston in 1883, and that fire decimated the uh, the communal minutes. All the records were lost. And so unlike a community like Suriname or Curaçao or even Barbados to a lesser extent, uh, th- there are no communal records from the 18th century. Um, they tried to keep the records again, and then they were destroyed in 1907 when a major earthquake devastated Kingston. So uh, I, I found that I found that to be an interesting puzzle. How do you tell this story yeah. without the, the kind of sources that you typically rely on mm-hmm. when you are writing communal histories, like Tenka uh, Sequila, that is a communal minutes documents, or Capiadores de Cartas, like the collections of letters between communities. Like uh, none of that existed. So how do you even tell this story? Uh, so the uh, the one document that I found in abundance were last wills and testaments. Mm-hmm. So I I, decide, I started reading these wills, and that th- that created a new project unto itself. Uh, so uh, that's the, sort of the genesis of this project, and it, it you know really changed that that archival trip changed the kind of historian that I was. Yeah, I had begun as a kind of cultural historian wanting to write about Hebrew travel literature. And ended up being a social historian, which is a bit anachronistic, but uh, that's um, you know that's really how I define myself. Yeah. Um, yeah, when I when I'm writing this book. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, in the preface, you say, "quote Your book is a case study of a single type of source, last wills and testaments," um, which is, I think, fascinating and, and some a methodology I've never really seen before. Um, how how are you able to sort of come to this story, how are you able to uh, parse this out just using mostly glass rules and testaments? Right. Yeah. So, so that, you know, that's, um, that's been the puzzle for the reviewers and, and everybody else. Like, is it, you know, is this work, does it merit being published? I mean, is it, <laughs> is it too limited? Yeah. Um, I, I use a lot of other kind of sources to uh, betress the, the last rules and testaments. So one thing that I realized is you can't just take one or two wills in isolation. You need you need them all. Yeah. And Jamaica made that possible because it was small enough that 
that with enough time and effort, I could uh, reproduce and read all of the wills of the Jews. And so, uh, you know, which wouldn't have been possible had I been writing about a community like Amsterdam or, I mean, or, or um, Salonika. You know, maybe, you know, maybe it'd be possible with a lot more effort, you know, and, but it's that those are in the thousands. We're talking about wills that were in the hundreds. So in the end, there was about, um, I forget the exact number, but uh, around 400 wills. Yeah. And um, and I was able just to really to sit and read them all. And and reading them all, you start to realize, you know, what is formulaic and when does when does a testator deviate from the formula? Mm. And then what does that deviation tell you? So so I was uh, I decided that, you know, wills just can't be used in isolation as they had been by earlier historians who are writing, like I'm writing a history of Aaron Lopez, the merchant. Okay, so I'm going to cite his will and cite the will of his family. Yeah. And uh, that to me just seemed too limited. So I wanted to see what could be gained by taking this, uh, this type of source as a, as a corpus unto itself. And, um, and one thing that was clear is the limitations. Yeah. They're, they're highly formulaic. Uh, they, they are removed from the voice of the testators themselves because they've all gone through the process of probate. So once when they're probated, the the um, I think this might be unique to the English system, but the uh, the, the scribes, uh, the notaries would then uh, record the will in a public document. So, you know, we don't actually have the handwritten wills mm-hmm. with the actual signatures of the testators. Yeah. So, you know, th- that to me seemed like an interesting contradiction into itself because they are very personal documents they are definitely like individualistic the whole idea of making a will is to assert an individualism against the intestacy laws right you don't want the government to uh, dictate how to uh, you know how to divvy up your estate you want to do it yourself and so that's that's why people make a will Mm -hmm. and so um the individualism of it was so fascinating yet at the same time they're not really individual documents. They're not ego documents. They tell you nothing about people's personal beliefs or mm-hmm. um, convictions or anything like that, um, or our personal histories. Mm-hmm. But when I read enough of them, there were certain patterns you could you could discern where people's where people were connected to within the wider diaspora. You could kind of uh, gauge people's connection to a wider community mm-hmm. through. Uh, through making uh, bequests to communal infrastructure, you could uh, see the role that burial played. Like, what was the um, what were the elements of Jewish communal life that were in play in a place like Jamaica? You could see um, you know you, a lot about the role of women and especially the role of of uh, slavery mm-hmm. and slave ownership. Really uh, stood out as some of the key features of these wills. And if you had enough of them then those patterns might tell you something. So that's, uh, but uh, wills are extremely limited, not just because they're formulaic, but they're also just, they're the voice of the wealthy. Yeah. Um, most people, like today, most people don't leave wills. And, um, yeah. and, and especially in Jamaica, we have, a, we have a weird perception of colonial American Jewish history as being a story of wealthy merchants. Because mm, yeah. that's the way it's been told. Aaron Lopez and Newport, the merchant prince, or in the the revolution, Haim Solomon, who was the financier of the revolution, and and that's a real unfortunate mythology and 
Um, in a lot of ways, the Jews constructed that mythology themselves because they wanted to show how how much how integrated they were and how integral they were to the colonies. Uh, but in reality, uh, the vast majority of Jews living in the Caribbean were very poor, and they were part of a despachado system, a system of of uh, of poor uh, of travel grants to indigent individuals from larger communities, and so th- they remain voiceless in a way because they don't leave wills. Um, so in a community with no other communal documents, you know, they're, they're lost. So that's another, you, you know, it, it's, it's a contradiction to try to write a, a, a social history with the voice of just a handful of the community. Yeah. Yeah, definitely, definitely a challenge. I mean, one, one of, you know, just kind of picking up on that last point there about how the typical narrative of these Jewish communities is one of wealthy merchants. Um, of course, that's obscuring non-wealthy uh, people of various uh, various professions and, and backgrounds. But uh, at least in, in your book, you do a good job of highlighting another group who, all about being wealthy, are not merchants, and those are the Jamaican planters, Jewish Jamaican planters. Um, can you sort of describe a little bit about this community, since obviously not many historians have written about Jewish planters in this period, um, and especially you know how they interacted with slavery? Yeah, um, you know, it, it's um, especially in Jamaica because Suriname was always thought to be that's the Jewish plantation society, if there was one. Yeah. Because in Suriname, uh, there was a community called Yodin Savannah, which was deep in the Surinamese jungle. Um, and that was a plantation society, but it was run by Jews. It was built by Jews. The synagogue was literally the center of the city. Um, there, Jews had their own militia. Um, it was the closest thing to autonomy, wow. you know, probably in the early modern world that a Jew had. Yeah. So it was a very singular uh, situation, and it was uh, built around Jewish plantocracy. Now, there's been some new recent research uh, on uh, Yodin Savannah and Suriname in general, which also highlights just how poor that city was. You know, you had a couple mer- planters surrounding the area, but most of the people who actually lived in the city were were the were the beggars were the Jewish paupers you know, mm-hmm. um, and so yeah, I think uh, so the the story of the poor is one thing and then the story of the planters is this other part uh, that's been ignored and I think one of the reasons it's been ignored, overlooked um, is is because it's an uncomfortable truth. Mm-hmm. A lot of uh, a lot of J- uh, Jews uh, who are writing in the twentieth century didn't were very uncomfortable, understandably so, with the you know with the, the the contradiction that a Jew could own slaves and then sit at a Passover, you know, seder and say we were once slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt. Yeah, um, and that was a, a dissonance that was hard to reconcile. So that led to a lot of apologetics, yeah. and then the issue became uh, even more exacerbated when groups like Nation of Islam tried to overemphasize just how involved Jews were in slavery mm-hmm. as a part of anti-Semitic canard. Yeah. And so um, now both of these narratives have roots in the colonial period. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were colonial uh, planters who blamed Jews like they blamed free people of color of being the ones that were the most abusive. So when abolitionists yeah. were accusing, yeah. you know, were accusing um, slave society of being brutal a lot of plant, white, you know, white Protestant planters would say, "No, no, it's not us. It's the Jews, and it's the uh, and it's the free people of color that are the abusive ones." Yeah. 
So th- there's a there's a and in Suriname it's a whole different story. So there's um, th- there are colonial roots to these, you know, th- this this um, contradictory ways of understanding the Jewish role in slave society. So that's why I also thought it was important to kind of go to the sources, let the sources speak for themselves. Mm-hmm. And uh, what you find is uh, it, it, it is that you know Jews are slave owners. Uh, without distinction, so they're no different than anybody else. The same brutalities and the same, um, in the same rates of uh, bequests. So that's to say that, you know, uh, slaves were um, be- bequeathed within Jewish wills far more frequently than they were free, and that was an important point because some of the early 20th century uh, apologists were kind of fell back on this mythology that Jews freed their slaves more more often. And um, that's just not true. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, there was a lot of layers of apologetics, mythology, um, discomfort, cultural discomfort that comes with telling the story of Jewish slave owners. That said, Jewish slave owners were no different than any other slave owners. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that's the important point. And in a way, I think that humanizes the Jews in this world, right, that they um, weren't always these kind of um, alien others. They were deeply embedded in the same cultural expectations. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but it's interesting that oftentimes the white leadership, uh, the white Christian leadership would um, value Jews or free people of color based on their utility to the slave regime. Mm-hmm. So for Jews, it was that, you know, they could pay, they could pay, you know, they could, uh, pay up with their um, taxes to support the slave regime, and in some and and in, uh, but there was always a fear of of Jews being a fifth column. Uh, it, it came up in Tacky's Revolt in 1760. Edward Long, I mean, the, the story is recorded in Edward Long, who was a, a English historian of uh, of uh, Jamaica, in the 17 uh, the 1770s, and you know you know he. Wow. He, he relates a story about how Jews were suspected of, uh, of um, supporting the, rebe- the, the rebels in Tacky's Revolt in 1760. Mm-hmm. The, same, the same thing happened in the first Maroon War mm-hmm. when Jews were accused of uh, being the ones selling gunpowder to the Maroons, mm-hmm. which was the aspect that really changed the nature of that conflict yeah. uh, when the Maroons had gunpowder. So uh, Jews, you know, their value to the society was was often judged in what would be their relationship to the enslaved. So, yeah, I mean, uh, that transitions perfectly to the next question I wanted to ask. Um, you know, speaking of, of this idea of slavery and race, um, you quote in the preface that the, the, quote, the Jews of Jamaica existed within the colony's racialized social hierarchy on the level of free people of color, yet from the perspective of the enslaved, they are no different from other white settlers. So kind of showing this, you know, racial ambiguity, how did the Jewish community navigate this sort of dual nature or racial uh, perception of them? And what do you think it tells us about race in early modern Jamaica? Yeah, I, I think that this, this is the question that I can't, you know, that I left sort of unexplored in the book and that now I'm, you know, now I'm, uh, uh, let's say, uh, let's say I, I, you know, I'm, uh, 
harvesting my own uh, ideas, you know, and uh, yeah. I'm, I, I'm a, a, you know, a vulture on my, on the, the remains of the book <laughs> because it's a, that's a, this is an idea I really did, did not explore in the book. And, and I've been writing about this now. Mm-hmm. And so my, uh, my thinking on this is that uh, it's really important to recognize that Jews and free people of color were much more entangled mm-hmm. in Jamaica and also, I think in, I think this holds in Curaçao and in, and in the cities of Suriname and Paramaribo um, than they were with white the white planters. Now, this changes over time, and I think that this is an important revision because a lot of uh, 20th century historians tended to think that Jews naturally are going to gravitate to the white planters. Mm-hmm. They're going to try to embed themselves in that society. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it's much more complex than that because uh, when you go back to the colonial period, the Jews uh, were very much uh, marginalized by the white plant, by the white plantocracy of Jamaica, the, the which is represented by the assembly, mm-hmm. uh, right? And so the the assembly um, often used um, language that put Jews and free people together of color together, uh, really almost as the same exact group. They had they had uh, basically the same civil disabilities. So, uh, you know, Jews, you know, Jews and free people of color, denizened or not, could not serve on juries. They couldn't, um, they, they couldn't bring certain kind of testimony against uh, white Christians. Um, they were, they had, they couldn't vote in elections. They couldn't sit on the, the they couldn't, uh, they couldn't, obviously couldn't be members of assembly. And they had the same kind of efforts to combat those disabilities. So this is like Francis Williams, famous uh, free man of color in Jamaica, who agitated for, for greater social, uh, social rights, uh, so, civil liberties. Um, he, he did it in a lot of the same ways that the Jews did. So uh, Abraham Sanchez Morale was a Jew in the 1750s who defiantly cast a vote. Um, and, and the same thing happened with some free people of color earlier than that. So um, it, it's a very, uh, it, it's more than a parallel experience. It's an entangled experience, yeah. the, the experience between Jews and free people of color. And to make it even stronger, uh, Jews almost never married with the Protestant, uh, the white Protestant communities. There's a lot of reasons for this. Um, the, the Portuguese Jews especially were ethnic. Uh, they defined their Jewishness in ethnic terms. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of reasons for that. I've argued that it's a sort of internalized limpieza de sangre. You know, they um, they could say that they were cut off from Judaism, having been conversos, but never cut off from the Jewish people. But this but this manifests in an ethnic ethnic supremacy. They don't marry Ashkenazim. Marrying Ashkenazim is anathema. They could get in big trouble for that. Um, and they they just do not marry into the white Protestant world. Now, at the same time. Uh, despite their their um, almost absurdly high rates of endogamy, they only marry Portuguese Jews. They also have un, uh, unparalleled sexual access to women of color because of the slave the, the 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 slave regime, because of the conditions of a slave society where women are disenfranchised. And so this manifests in um, kind of alternative marriages. It manifests in types of surrogacy. Uh, of, of married Jewish men, of concubinage for married Jewish men, that is Jewish men who are legally married to a uh, Portuguese Jewish woman. 
Um, and so th this is not unique in a slave society, but it's interesting for Jews because after all, like in Islamic law, a Jewish law has no problem with uh, concubinage. It's totally okay. Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, so th there's there's a lot of these women seem to have had status as a of a pilegesh or the pileg shot, meaning legally recognized concubines. Um, some of them were brought into the fold of Judaism through conversion. A lot of their children were kind of uh, were were uh, absorbed into the Jewish community or in the Jewish family, albeit with certain limitations. Uh, so uh, one thing that makes the Jewish community and the free people of color in Jamaica much more closely entangled than they than either were to the white uh, minority, uh, the white Christian minority, was that they were um, that they that they had children together. And so you have uh, as you move into the the era of emancipation into the 19th century and even deeper into the 20th century, you, th this is partially what I mean by a diaspora in transition. Mm -hmm. is the complexion is changing. You, you, Jews are becoming people of color. So free people of color and Jewishness are often um, are often categories that can't be disentangled. Mm -hmm. For a lot of people, Jewishness and being of color are, are the same thing in the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that that's a really important corrective to a, um, a sentiment that Jews were always Kind of, kind of leaning towards wanting to be white planters, uh, trying to be, trying to be white, right? Trying to be white Christians, um, and in, in a lot of the literature, the, um, the white Christian planters would literally call Jews black. Mm. Uh, we would describe Jews as being black, and uh, you know, and and and, and often, often just uh, melding the two communities together in the language that they use. So. I, I really, this is kind of where I'm going right now with some of the recent things that I've written, trying to flesh out this um, this issue. Yeah, no, that's such an interesting point, and there's apparent contradictions and, and ambiguities there. I, I wanted to, I mean, you, you focus uh, on a point you made about this idea, this idea of marriages and family in chapter six and seven. I just kind of want to go over over that a little bit more. Um, because on, you know, on the one hand, as, as you said, you relate that these communities uh, had exclusive marriages with other members of the you know, Portuguese Nassau, uh, and thus uh, you know, highlighting their distinctiveness from Jamaican society and connection with a sort of larger ethically, ethically distinct transatlantic diaspora. But on the other hand, as you mentioned, you focus on these uh, you know, either non-legally recognized uh, or somewhat pseudo-legally recognized blended Jewish families that included women and children of color, uh, which was, you know, part of, as you say, the sort of creolization process or a tie to local uh, Jamaican society. So how do you kind of make sense of these apparent contradictions in this community? Yeah, um, I, I, I don't try to reconcile that, that. My answer is I don't try to reconcile the contradiction. Yeah. I, I just try to appreciate the contradiction. And I, and I think that that is the beauty of Atlantic history. Yeah. Um, that's what Atlantic history has done for us. I think in broad strokes, um, it's allowed us to, uh, you know, uh, you know, some some pure Atlanticists may disagree with this, but I think that one of the beauties of Atlantic history as a category of analysis is that it, it allows us to just kind of um, appreciate these contradictions because they're hybridities. Yeah. Um, and rather than try to reconcile contradictions, so 
um, as I say in the book, right, this is a book about contradictions. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, and that's uh, exactly what I've tried to do with those two chapters by juxtaposing those two chapters, because it's, you know, chapter six, I, I think it is like, it's, it's all about how ethnically distinct they were. And if you look at their wills, the, the rates of endogamy are absurd. It's something like eight, it's over 80%. Um, and, and then some of them, very few of them marry Ashkenazim. But that's, uh, that's very unique, especially because Ashkenazim in this diaspora and transition, Ashkenazim are becoming the majorities. In 1730, by 1730, uh, Polish and German uh, Jews are now the majorities in London, in Amsterdam, in New York. Uh, now, it's different in the Caribbean, right? Suriname has got a very large community, but still they're under Portuguese, like they're legally recognized Portuguese rule. So the Portuguese Jewish uh, community has complete authority over them, and and so it's um, it's a little different story in the Caribbean, yeah. um, but but the, at least the marriages that they're willing to um, to talk about in their wills, right? The ones that survive legally are are absurdly uh, endogamous. Yeah, I, I, and I don't mean that as a judgment. I mean this like the rates are very high, mm-hmm. um, and yet at the same time that coexists with this other reality of living in a slave society, which is building uh, families um, officially, unofficially, uh, you know, how they're, they're, they're hard to define because, you know, Jamaica does not have anti-miscegenation laws like Louisiana, right? It's, it's completely legal. You could technically get married. And I believe that there were some cases of actual marriage between people of color and, and people deemed to be white. Not to mention the, the the Jamaican Assembly encouraged blanching, so to speak. Yeah. They 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 offered privileges bills to people that could show their white ancestry. So um, now that kind of that's reversed a little bit after 1760 mm-hmm. uh, because of the fear of um, you know of, of insurrection yeah. that came up uh, with Tacky's revolt, and then um, and then and then it was amplified during the Haitian revolutions. Like oh no, like we're going to have the same kind of revolution right here yeah. in Jamaica. And that, and the fact that it didn't happen was not an inevitability. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, the, the um, so so that's to say uh, that Jamaica. It's hard to define the relationships because also they're they're unequal in, in the power dynamics. So um, Jews are yeah sure Jews are disenfranchised in Jamaica. They are subject of discrimination. Some of it very violent, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, at the same time. They are. Um, they can own slaves. They own human beings, and um, no one is owning a Jew as a slave. Yeah. Yeah. So that, I think that that's what I meant by by, by saying uh, the line that you quoted that for the for for the black um, uh, enslaved population, yeah. uh, you know what it didn't matter to them. You're owned by a Jew or owned by a white Christian. Yeah. They're both the agents of their you know of of uh, agents of their um, of their persecution. So I, I just I don't try to reconcile uh, the contradiction. I just try to appreciate it because that's um, that th- that's just a, a uh, recapitulation of humanity. That's the beauty of Atlantic history, because all humanity is is full of contradictions. Because every human is contradictory yeah. within themselves, and so th- that's you know yeah I, I feel like it's a um, misguided history to try to. To try to reconcile contradictions, I think there's a lot more to be gained by yeah. identifying them. Yeah, 
um, at least in the Atlantic context. Yeah, I mean, speaking of that Atlantic context, you have a really fantastic quote I think that sums that up on page 198, where you say, quote, the Atlantic world was both a unified regional identity as well as the sum of its parts. Unified regional identity as well as the sum of its parts, which I think you know speaks to that wider argument you're making about how this Jewish community was both localized and creolized as well as part of this larger diaspora and transcendent of that. Yeah, uh, exactly. That's another thing that made Jamaica so interesting because, uh, you know, look, are Jews part of the empires in which they live? This was a question that came up recently at a, at a conference. Like, were Jews, did Jews identify with the empires? Um, or were Jews something else? Like, and, and, you know, and I see the, the arguments in, in both ways, but um, I, I prefer to think of Jews as a, as a diaspora. Yeah. So, which meant that Jews living in Jamaica had two metropoles, right? They looked to yep. Amsterdam yep. As, the, uh, as the center of their diaspora. Right, because that's where uh, that's where the the prominent community members were. That's where the rabbinic academy was. That's where the rabbinic authority came from. That's where the wealth came from. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, but then, as part of the British Empire, uh, they were looking to London, right? So, um, and they looked to the London Jewish community to um, involve themselves in a lot of their lobbying efforts. So, um, there's these two kind of there's just two metropoles. And um, I think that that's an interesting way of thinking about the Atlantic as being you know, some of its parts, because it's um, you can't just say that there are uh, Jews completely transcend the um, completely transcend the imperial borders. Mm-hmm. In some ways, like there's a you know a lot of Jews does not matter if you're living in the Dutch or the English, um, and, and in some ways it, it might, in some ways it might not. Uh, but I think that that's some of the that's one of the the value of studying a diaspora. Within an empire, yeah. uh, is uh, is by looking at these incongruities. Yeah. I think it's it's a great example of how Atlantic history is not just say British history, British imperial history in different clothes, or Portuguese imperial history in different clothes, but you have this sort of topic that transcends those empires and tells a, a, a wider, truly Atlantic story. I think. Really- uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, you know. It seems like a simplistic way of looking at it, but look at, you know, if you just go to the cemeteries, the Jewish cemeteries in the Caribbean, yeah. you'll see their tombstones. The tombstones are manufactured in, in, in Amsterdam or in London because, they, you know, the, the stonemasons in the Caribbean don't know, uh, you know, don't know the Hebrew. Yeah. Probably. I, I assume that that's why. Uh, but they're all imported. Yeah. And uh, they're imported from London or Amsterdam. Um, and they are etched with Hebrew. They're etched with English, and they're etched with um, uh, with with Portuguese or Spanish. Yeah. So I think that tells a big story. Like these are people that were at one time, one at the same time, part of a empire, part of a religious diaspora or ethnic diaspora, and also uh, part of a uh, you know with a very different linguistic and cultural set of. Um, Expectations or or experiences in other people living in the in, in the English or the Dutch uh, world. Yeah, really fantastic. So um, my final sort of main content question here, you know, you described how how difficult you know it was to uh, do this research in Jamaica, especially with the source base, um, and you know. You know that there perhaps are larger Jewish communities, more rich sources in places like Amsterdam or Curacao or 
or Suriname or even London. But why do you think it's important in your words to, quote unquote, center the periphery and focus on Jamaica rather than these sort of more typical, larger locales? Yeah, uh, th- that's, I mean, that's, that's a great question. You know, and it's one that I wrestle with, of course, you know, as I, yeah. I was writing this book. Um, there's been a lot of, uh, one of the reasons is there's been a lot of great research on Suriname. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and, and so, you know, that, that, that was being developed. And that's partially because Suriname is so rich in its documentary legacy. Um, you know, you can, uh, they have very um, relatively complete minutes and um, a lot of other types of communal sources. So there's a lot to work with there. Um, and, and I was intrigued by trying to recreate a community from just one kind of source. That so that was one reason. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt also like the story of Jamaica had not been taken seriously. Mm-hmm. That Jamaica had not been properly placed within a, a Western safari or Portuguese context mm-hmm. sufficiently. Mm-hmm. Um, it was always this kind of this footnote, and it's always this still to this day. It's kind of a footnote to the early American experience. I mean. You see that in, in faculties, in universities today. Like, where does someone who studies the, the British West Indies belong? Yeah. Is that a story of, is that an early American story? Is that a Latin American story? Um, is it part of a, when you say Caribbean studies, you tend to think more of the Spanish world. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it, it, it speaks to this, you know, um, the misfit status of the British West Indies that I felt would benefit from placing it into a larger transatlantic and even global context. Uh, but, but also uh, what I was trying to achieve, and this is one, probably the question more than any other that brought me to this project was um, the 18th century. The Western Sephardi diaspora is essentially ignored when you get to the 18th century. There's a ton of literature about the, uh, the, the golden age, the Dutch golden age, the age of Spinoza, the age of uh, Saul Levi Mortiera in Amsterdam, the great uh, rabbinic academy of Eitzchayim, the Tree of Life Academy that was established to help re-Judaize people coming um, directly from Portugal. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so there's been, uh, you know, my mentors and the literature that I was sort of, uh, you know, that I was fed on as a PhD student was um, really heavily focused on the 17th century. Mm-hmm. And, and the few that did write about the 18th century wrote about it because of, as a story of, of disappearance, because the wealth in Amsterdam uh, diminished. The, the, there was, a, you know, several investment bubbles that burst. And so, you know, that kind of led to a um, really uh, the, the society in Amsterdam becoming re- relatively marginalized as London became more important. And then it becomes a Central European story, Jewish history just in general. So in the 18th century, you're talking about the Enlightenment and other and, and emancipation, um, and you sort of lose the thread of 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 uh, you know of the Amsterdam story. Mm-hmm. So uh, by by going into the 18th century, I felt like I was doing a service to the field just by writing about the 18th century, since it's ignored when it comes to the Portuguese yeah. uh, diaspora. Yeah. Uh, but also. It enabled me to come at this uh, diaspora and transition because what I argue is that it's not a disappearing diaspora. Yeah. Rather, it's a transitioning diaspora because all you got to do is just flip the center and periphery. Mm-hmm. And if you're no longer looking at Amsterdam, then the th- then the whole then the only reason that you believe that the that the uh, diaspora is in decay 
is you're just looking at Amsterdam. Mm. But when you look at Bayonne together with Jamaica, together with Suriname, mm -hmm. then, then a very different story emerges. There's a shifting of center and periphery, mm -hmm. is what I argue. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's really fascinating. And I think uh, along goes along with themes I can, I, I can remember from sort of Dutch historiography, especially the trade of centering the 18th century more rather than just the golden age of the 17th century. And so I commend you for that, especially as an 18th century historian to, uh, to focus on. on <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, 18th century is, the, is, is just an amazing place to live as an historian. Because you are you're early you're an early modernist you're a modernist at the same time mm -hmm. uh, this 18th century is not early modern it's not exactly modern so it's just it's and especially in the Atlantic world it's a place it's a time full of hybridities yeah. and a, a, a real human transitions yeah. that are happening so it's cultural transitions definitely so it's a, it's a it's a fascinating time to study yeah well well thank you. Uh, very much for, for this discussion. We, we have one final question that we usually ask all our scholars here, and that is, do you have any you know projects or publications on the horizon that you'd like to highlight for us today? Yeah, yeah, sure. I, I, I have, uh, you know, uh, as uh, anyone, I guess, uh, anyone else who has, you know, written a book will tell you that the day that book came out, I was done with it. <laughs> like, I don't want to, I don't want to look at this book anymore. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I, I'm kind of moving on. I've written a little bit about uh, this question of entanglement, the, the, the question of free people of color, which is something that was sort of left, uh, I think, you know, unexplored in the book. Uh, and so I've tried to develop that uh, in a publication that's coming out. I've been writing a little bit about the 20th century. Mm. So I have some documents that I, that I discovered from the 20th century. So I figured I'd take a little... Foray into that, so I've been writing about race theory and um, Jewish racial identity um, in the uh, in, in the 20th century, and uh, and then uh, so that those are the current my current irons in the fire, and then uh, in, in a bigger picture, I've been slowly working on a second book, which is back into the 18th century, but it deals with the rabbis. It's a it's called an Atlantic rabbinate. And I'm trying to understand uh, what is the character of rabbinic, uh, rabbinic um, authority uh, and rabbinic culture uh, between Amsterdam, London, and the Americas. And so there's a lot of questions I'm asking there. Um, can you date rabbinic authority in the Americas earlier than, it's, than, than it, than it uh, has traditionally been done? Um, is there an indigenous kind of rabbinic enlightenment? That that's different from the the Eastern the, the Central European Enlightenment. Mm -hmm. So those are the kind of questions that I'm that I'm asking in my next book project. Fantastic. Well, we're looking forward to seeing those all in print. Um, and I really appreciate uh, Dr. Murray's your time for this enlightening discussion and for your really wonderful book. Thanks, Grant. I really appreciate uh, being here. This was a lot of fun. Of course. Uh, so Stanley Murgis's The Jews of 18th Century Jamaica. A Testament History of a Diaspora and Transition is out now via Yale University Press. This is R. Grant Clauser saying thank you and see you next time.